Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dave Aiding. Today, we're joined by Dr. Elise Kramer. We're going to be speaking about scleral lenses and dry eye on the OI show. Well, thanks again for joining us for the Optometric Insight show. I'm pleased and honored to get to hang out with my good friend, uh, Dr. Elise Kramer. How are you today, Dr. Kramer? I'm the honored one to be here on the OI show. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we're so lucky to get to chat with you. You have a uh, a very awesome clinic. You've been on our show before, but can you share with everybody a little bit about you and your practice and how you yeah. changed the world of, <laughs> for scleral lenses all over the place? I mean, I've been fitting scleral lenses for a while. I had really good training in school with uh, Dr. Angis Michaud and Etty Vuitton in Montreal. And then, you know, I did a ocular disease residency here in Miami. And then I, I just wanted to dedicate my practice to contact lenses and uh, dry eye. And, um, and I've been doing that for about 10 or 11 years now. And I love it. Um, I have two practices here in South Florida. One is in Weston, which is near Fort Lauderdale, and the other one's in Miami. And uh, we work mainly with scleral lenses. We do a little primary care, myopia management, and uh, dry eye as well. So, um, you know, scleral lenses is a life-changing, practice-changing discipline. And uh, and I, I love how innovative it's become and and how such a hot topic it is right now. So. Yeah. And and you've been involved with scleral lenses and helping in the education world of scleral lenses as well. Can you tell a little bit about your outside the office yeah. assistance? So um, I'm the secretary on the Scleral Lens Education Society. And for those listeners who don't know, the Scleral Lens Education Society is a non-for-profit organization that basically um, just, you know, uh, educates uh, both practitioners and patients um, about scleral lenses. And so I'm, I'm a huge part of that. And we do a lot of workshops, lectures and various uh, major meetings and also internationally. I just got back from Ecuador teaching there at the College of Optometry and trying to get those guys to, you know, be more involved with scleral lenses. But I also speak other languages and I lecture, you know, around the world, just trying to get as many practitioners on board. Um, I've been to Jordan, to uh, South America and Europe and a whole bunch of different places, just trying to get practitioners in and comfortable fitting scleral lenses. Yeah. I admire that about you and your generosity is that you speak so many languages that it's just easy for you to go and lecture and talk about what you do because you can do it in so many languages which is awesome I, I i wanted to target target you for this topic because you've got uh such a large scleral lens practice but you also have such a dry eye practice and there's 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 people who who just think oh you know we'll we'll do dry eye and they don't think about scleral lenses at all on the flip side when i started doing dry eye and i mean that's a that's a weird thing to say because when did you start being a dry eye doctor but i can tell you for me it was 2013 i made a switch and i became a dry eye specialist 
invested a lot of money into dry eye technologies, went away from just using artificial tears, was at that point that I started doing pharmaceuticals and treatments and so forth. And I thought, well, heck, I'm going to do a lot of scleral lenses for dry eye patients. Just because I thought it would be, you know, scleral lenses would be for everybody. So I want to dig into a little bit of there's some dry eye patients who should not be in scleral lenses. And there's some dry eye patients who absolutely that's a direction to go. So first of all, let's start off with when you think about utilizing a scleral lens for a dry eye patient, how do you think about it different than say a keratoconus patient that walks in the door? Is the lens different? That's a really good question. So the fitting, you know, um, the, the, the fitting of the lens is the same. The way you fit the lens would be the same in the sense that you want to clear over the cornea, you want to land on the sclera, but you might pick a design that covers more of the eye so that you can provide more hydration and, um, you know, a larger tear film reservoir over a longer uh, a, a larger amount of space on the surface of the eye. So that would be different. Um, but I think one important thing to consider is what is the dry eye from and what's the underlying cause? And that's really what determines for me whether I'm fitting a scleral lens in this patient or I'm picking another treatment. So so from the lens itself is if somebody's already doing scleral lenses for keratoconus or something else, they're a dabbler, they could probably use the same lens. One of the one of the thoughts they may do on a dry eye patient is to select a larger diameter would be maybe something that they would consider. What are the what are some of the the types of dry eye patients that you may think this is not a good candidate for scleral lenses? Like who would you first of all say, no, not for you? So I've tried fitting scleral lenses in those neuropathic dry eye patients and those patients that have tried every single drop have, they don't, you know, they've got pain without stain type of thing. Um, their symptoms are just not correlating with the signs. The eye looks pretty good, but they're just severely uncomfortable. Those people have not had much success fitting scleral lenses on. Um, so that would be a direct, like, I think you need pain management or some, you know, we can try other things. I just haven't been successful with that. Um, and then I would say that patients who have severe evaporative dry eye, a contact lens is not my first choice because I feel like there's other treatments that are more effective for that type of dry eye. And they might not be tolerating um, a any type of contact lens because of, uh, you know, the pre-lens tear foam. So um, I would, you know, probably try to optimize uh, the evaporative component before I even considered a scleral lens in a patient like that. Yeah, you know, uh, one group of patients that I've... Um... I've, I've thought in, in, in the same alignment with you is, is if I see a lot of lid wiper epitheliopathy, usually indicative of, 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 of a patient who has MGD, if, if that is a big component of that, that just means that that patient has a lot of friction happening with their eyelid, 
over their ocular surface. And the scleral lens is not going to be slipperier than the ocular surface itself. And so I would, I would work to, to, if that patient has a combination, I would work to, let's see if we can get your oil secretions increased, and then we may be able to go that direction. In fact, in severe, severe cases of that, I may go to a daily disposable soft lens, like a daily's total one or an infuse, which has a really slippery surface. And that may be an indication of when a a contact lens may be a better treatment, particularly a daily disposable than a scleral lens. Have you had similar? Yeah, because the thing is, whatever contact lens you put on the surface as a foreign body, it's going to exacerbate evaporation. And Mm -hmm. so even though it hydrates the ocular surface, and that's great, your problem is really excessive evaporation, which is not going to be resolved with a scleral lens. If anything, it'll be exacerbated. So I agree. I think that, you know, if, if evaporative is a primary component of the dry eye disease, then that needs to be addressed separately. And then eventually, if that's stable, then a scleral lens can be considered, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on the neuropathic side, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, pain management is definitely indicated for these patients. I think there are a few patients, it's kind of a 50, 50. It, it just may not work at all. And the patient may totally be no way. Actually, it probably less than 50, 50. It's like a 20% may work for them. And those are those patients who you may be trying a lot of different things for them. And you may get lucky. A scleral lens may help them a little bit, but it certainly is not taking away that pain you know, we would be, do a preparacane test on those patients and say, you know, what is the percentage? A true neuropathic patient is is not going to have a lot of relief with preparacane and covering the ocular surface isn't going to help those patients either. So if, if they have a component that is not uh, neuropathic, you may be able to help with that and that maybe help a percentage, but you're dead spot on with that. Now, neurotrophic may be another direction, right? That's that's in that sur- same nerve issue. And I'm, I presume you use them for neurotrophic patients. Yeah, that's, that's a more of a slam dunk case. Um, obviously, there's other treatments like Oxervate and, yeah. you know, other treatments that I would do for a patient with neurotrophic keratitis. But for sure, like that would be a way more successful uh, outcome uh, with a scleral lens because, you know, these patients are, have a problem with their neuro, their trophic supply. They have a problem with their nerves. And until, you know, that um, regenerates, if anything, with the Oxervate treatment, then a scleral lens is ideal for preventing epithelial breakdown, for preventing, you know, ulceration of the ocular surface. So that's a completely different uh, scenario that I, I definitely would in, think that a scleral lens is indicated. Having heard you speak about neurotrophic in, in the past, I think you and I probably have this same perception about it is when does a patient who have dry eye, has dry eye become a neurotrophic case? The reality is, yeah, we can do corneal sensitivity, the testing, but really the neurotrophic is the body is not producing the quality and the normal tear that it needs to have. 
And that starts way earlier than we historically have diagnosed them with neurotrophic. So you could potentially argue that some lacrimal dysfunction, the lacrimal function unit, including the nerves and all the production anywhere along that lines is an early neurotrophic. And is, is that kind of where you tend to go to is like the, the oil production is fine. You're doing a meibomian gland expression. There's good oils, but that patient has some sort of a deficiency in their tear production. Is that where you usually would go and think of in those other types of dry eye patients? Not a classic neurotrophic patient, but somebody in, in, in that lineup. So I think one of the things that I do is if I, if I see it's not primarily evaporative, which it usually is. And like, I would say the standard dry eye case, most of them happen to be evaporative. Um, but in those patients who are aqueous deficient, I feel like there's usually an underlying cause, right? And so dry mouth questions are important. Um, I think autoimmune questions are important. Um, you know, getting them to get a blood test, see if they have any joint pain, any, you know, other types of, do they have a rash on their face? Is there anything that is systemic that could be associated to the dry eye? And I think that's important. You know, on average, it takes 10 years to diagnose Sjogren's syndrome. And I think that number is coming down, thankfully. But I think, you know, a lot of the time these patients end up in our office first. Um, and so I think it's important to ask these questions. Uh, neurotrophic, you know, yes, I, I think that you're onto something with the, you know, lack of tear production. Um, and I think corneal sensitivity is a huge, uh, a huge key in that aspect. I think what I'll do is... Um, if I see that a patient has corneal staining, I will automatically test sensitivity. And sometimes their symptoms are not correlating with their signs. You know, I think the biggest um, kind of sign, clinical sign is they come in, then they're complain- complaining of blurry vision, not necessarily, you know, dryness, but you see corneal staining and then, you know, easily test sensitivity with dental floss and, um, and then you have it, you know what I mean? So I think, um, more people need to get on that for sure. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I'd like to go uh, because I've been such a, an advocate of it, but nobody's really getting one. I think I need to go in business selling them. I, I, I need to get you a cochet bonnet anesthesiometer. They're like, a couple hundred dollars. And when you can test the the amount of sensitivity, I was surprised by how few people use them. The reality is most people are doing exactly what you're doing is with dental floss or a cotton. So and that works fine. Most people don't even do that. Right. Um, but uh, getting that sensitivity, it's really surprising how um, I may have missed it. But when I can quantify that, that the crochet bonnet has a measurement and that just even the slightest amount and you're like, Oh, something seems to be there. And then you test different quadrants and you can kind of pick up on that. It's, it's pretty astounding. And, and, and like you said, you know, we never do one treatment. I, I, I think you probably would agree most of the time 
you have patients on other treatments in addition to scleral lenses. Is there a usual that you might use for, for patients? You no, know, I would love to have a formula that I could apply. Right. I know that's not, <laughs> not possible. I, I don't. I, I think that dry eye is complex and multifactorial. And I think that, you know, back in the day it was like, okay, dry eye, artificial tears, punctal plugs, done. And now we have all these options. I don't think all the options apply to every single patient. I think we have diagnostic tools available now that can help us distinguish the underlying causes, including coche bonnet or, you know, dental floss, mybography, and, you know, all these tests that we have. And then from that, you know, you get results, you get help diagnosing what it is. I, I'm, I'm looking at my OSDI questionnaire because I have it right here and it's something else you can use and, you know, flip eyelids and see what's going on. And then once you have that, then you can determine how can I best treat this patient? If you throw on every single treatment on every single patient, your patient's going to walk out confused, overwhelmed, discouraged, I think that scleral lenses are a great option. I don't think that they're for every single person with dry eye. I think that it's one of my go-tos for primarily aqueous deficient dry eye. Um, but yes, I like to add other treatments. Um, I'll add an immunomodulator before and after scleral lens use. I'll add an overnight gel if they have a little bit of lag ophthalmos. Or, or if they have a fan that they like to use over their bed, which a lot of people in South Florida do. Um, you know, if they've got allergy, you know, that increases inflammation. So I'll add, you know, a, a mast cell stabilizer drop as well, something yeah. like that. So it depends, you know, what it, what what's going on. And I think um, there's no answer for every patient, you know. Right. What can you give us some examples of of when you've made that decision to go to scleral lenses and 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 what got you there? Was it at the initial consultation or after you had done some other treatments? Did you make that decision or how do you get to sclerals? Right. That's a great question. Um, so I think that aqueous deficient is the primary case that I will choose for a scleral lens patient. These are patients who've tried a lot of things and they come to me because they want uh, something else. And I explain to them how a scleral lens works. And uh, usually that is something that we agree on together. And like I said, I usually add on other treatments as well. Maybe certain things that they're not doing, increase eyelid hygiene and different things yeah. like that. Um, but I would say that a patient who comes in with a lot of corneal staining, that is someone that I want in a scleral lens. A patient that comes in with a lot of conjunctival staining is something that I would want a large diameter scleral lens in. I use mm. listening green in order to see that. Um, and I think that severe conjunctival staining can be very painful. And I think that's underestimated, even if they don't have corneal staining. Some people come in, their cornea is intact, but they have lysamine green, like, you know, grade two or three or even more. And it's painful. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, what, what about using the bowl of the lens? There's a lot of talk of 
using the bowl of the lens to to you know present certain things to the ocular surface for extended periods of time. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, so I love doing that. Um, I, I think it's definitely more expensive, you know, but it's I think it's worth it for a lot of patients. Uh, I'm saying it's more expensive to the patient um, because they're using drops uh, that are more expensive than, you know, unidose saline, preservative-free saline. So what do I like to add in there? Anything that's preservative-free that could be beneficial to the patient. So it could be autologous serum tears, Regenerize. It could be moxifloxacin I've used, especially if they've got an active epithelial defect. Um, I've used preservative-free artificial tears as well. Um, that's probably more common than the others. And, um, I think as long as it's preservative free and it helps promote, um, you know, the regeneration and protection of the ocular surface, then I would put it in there. I would not put in an immunomodulator or a steroid in there, um, personally, but, uh, any of the drops I mentioned, I would put in, I do have some patients who are kind of just no brainer cases of GVHD, graft versus host disease, Steven Johnson syndrome, um, severe rosacea. I have a patient who had uh, leukemia and now has severe rosacea. He hasn't been diagnosed with GVHD because he doesn't have, he didn't have a bone marrow transplant, but it's like a similar type of case where it's just like a cornea that's just break, you know, breaking down. And so yeah. these are cases where a scleral lens is absolutely um, instrumental. Yeah, those just make sense, right? It's it's pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah. You know, kind of uh, recapping some of the things that I think we we, we shared here is when there is a, a an evaporative component lid wiper, you're just seeing the meibomian glands not working. Solve that first and see how much of the aqueous deficiency or the lacrimal functional unit, as we like to describe it, is not functioning the way that it should, how much staining has not resolved. Um, and, and in addition to, I, I would say there's never a case where I've gone to a scleral lens where I hadn't already had the patient on an immunomodulator of some sort. Um, that's just kind of the baseline. You see aqueous, uh, aqueous deficiency aspect. You just need to be on an immunomodulator. And then they may need, in addition to that, um, a, a, a vital tears, a toggleless serum. They may need a regenerized and amniotic uh, uh, eye drop. And a great carrier of those for patients who who need to put them on several times during the day is a scleral lens. So not only from the protection standpoint, but also for the carrier of that uh, for longer standing uh, contact with the eye, a great thing to do. Um, awesome. Any, any closing thoughts, doc? Yeah, I would say, you know, just got me thinking there. And I think quality, it comes before quantity. When you, um, fix the evaporative component first, then all your other treatments that you're doing for aqueous deficiency are going to be more successful. If you put like punctal plugs, for example, and your tear film quality is no good, it's not going to help much, right? So I think that before you introduce a foreign body, whether it's a daily disposable or scleral lens um, to the ocular surface, you definitely need to optimize 
um, the quality of the tear film, and that's going to be with treatments that, um, you know, reduce evaporation of, of the tear film. And yeah. so that's always going to be first. If I see that there's my bumming gland deficiency and it's significant and there's just a tear film quality is not there, that's going to be my first priority. And I know that that will increase success of whatever treatments I do after, especially a scleral end. Yeah, absolutely. No, fantastic. Um, well, I thought that was a pretty good little podcast there. We, we, we got through some good things and put some, uh, put some ideas down. Um, thank you for hanging out and, and sharing you. with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening. We appreciate uh, all of your support. If you uh, like this podcast, make sure to like and subscribe and please share this podcast uh, and any of our others with uh, friends that you know, so that you can uh, share the knowledge and share the insights that are coming from Optometric Insights. Thank you and have a good rest of your day. 